There's a semi-tradition in American politics for the folks running the Democrat and Republican parties to dig up dirt on each other, and more specifically, on each other's presidential candidates, and then in the months leading up to an election, to deploy something really toothy from that collection of opposition research. This is often referred to as an October surprise, though these sorts of scandalous materials do not always arrive the month before the November election, and in fact, they've trended toward being dropped earlier and earlier in the election cycle as our news environment and social media platforms have changed the way stories are picked up and spread. Earlier deployment often means a longer runway for building up attention and a narrative around something juicy. A would-be October surprise that did not seem to garner the attention the surprisers had hoped for back in 2020 was the revelation in the pages of the conservative-leaning New York Post that a laptop owned by Hunter Biden, President Joe Biden's son, was dropped off at a repair shop in 2019 and then never reclaimed, the hard drive of the laptop containing all sorts of scandalous things of the sort a presidential candidate would not want to be associated with, even at arm's length. This story, which was brushed off by many news entities at the time because the folks who were pushing it hardest were known conspiracists and conmen who had often tried to push partially or entirely fabricated stories in the past, and who were thus not the most trustworthy of messengers in the world for this sort of thing. The story came across to most other news entities as a little too perfect, a little too well-timed, and a little too desperate in a way, too, as it focused on the drug and sex-related escapades of the opposing candidate Joe Biden's son. The story was then spun into a supposedly bigger story, and Biden's opposition, then President Trump, said that Biden had acted in a corrupt manner to protect his son while vice president, the accusation being that Biden supposedly withheld a loan guarantee to pressure the Ukrainian government into not investigating a gas company called Burisma, a company whose board Hunter Biden sat on. That ended up not being true, the story having been planted by Russian intelligence proxies, according to the findings of an investigation by the U.S. intelligence community. And the Republican October surprise seekers latched on to that Russian-planted story, spreading it around and hoping that it would take root, but the more specific smaller issue of Hunter Biden's laptop, which became a rallying cry for many on the political right, never really went away. And even if that mostly meant Hunter Biden did drugs and went to sex parties, as media contained on this laptop seemed to confirm, which was something that was already publicly known for a long time, Hunter Biden is a confirmed drug addict and has struggled with that addiction for years. Despite all that, the visualization of this addiction and related issues was enough for some folks flogging this concept, still hoping to make it a millstone around the neck of Biden's next campaign. We are now just over a year out from the 2024 U.S. presidential election, and this story is back in the news not because of Hunter's laptop, much to the surprise of everyone who has been holding on to that narrative, hoping it would grow into something truly scandalous, 
but instead because of unrelated illegality, the younger Biden having not paid taxes on income he received in 2017 and 2018, and having acquired a gun, and in the process of doing so, lying about being a drug addict on a form that he signed. These are both crimes, and under normal, not-the-son-of-the-president circumstances, he would likely face either relatively moderate punishments, some kind of fine or community service, or the charges would be struck from his record after a period of probation. So no prison, but harsh penalties if he did anything wrong during those several probationary years. And that's basically what he would have faced under a plea deal that was agreed upon a few years ago, under which he would have acknowledged his failure to pay those taxes, pled guilty on that, and in return would have gotten probation plus no charges for the gun thing. Being a politically connected figure, though, Republicans took major issue with this deal, while many Democrats said it was essentially normal and pointed the finger back at Republicans, saying they were just irked that this would-be October surprise did not pan out, while reminding them that their grand conspiracies about Ukraine and Biden and corruption were all false all along. This is back in the news now, because that plea deal whether you consider it to be fair and correct, or a travesty and further indication of corruption from up on high, it fell apart. The judge in the case, questioning its legitimacy, on the very day Hunter Biden was meant to make the plea associated with it. The judge, who was appointed by Trump, raised concerns that the deal would seem to grant him a sort of blanket immunity, and that it seemed atypical though she has said that she's mostly just asking questions at this point and wants to do due diligence before moving forward. So the plea is not off the table, but it is up for negotiation again, and the judge has said she reserves the right to disagree with what the opposing sides come up with. Those sides, as of the day I'm recording this at least, heading back to the drawing board and apparently at an impasse, but in the process of figuring out a new potential way forward at the same time that a special counsel has been appointed to investigate these claims and other things connected to Hunter Biden independently. What I would like to talk about today is another talking point and potential narrative in the upcoming election, though this one less October surprisey and more related to the economy and the unique approach to the economy in recent history at least that President Biden has taken during his tenure in office so far. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The upcoming 2024 US presidential election is looking to be a contentious and scandal-plagued one, with on one side, Hunter Biden's mess and everything attached to that, and on the other side, former President Trump's many issues with the law all seeming to catch up with him all at once. A flurry of lawsuits, indictments, investigations, and court cases all coming to a head right before the election. Those on the investigating and prosecution side scrambling to get in front of juries and judges. All those legal fees adding up and draining Trump's political resources. And all the preparation and actual in-court time pulling Trump from the meet-and-greets and debates and other things candidates typically spend most of their time on at this stage in the ramp-up to an election. 
Beyond the narrative-driven, legal-case-amplified politicking, though, some people are still paying attention, believe it or not, to the fundamentals, how the two main candidates would actually legislate if given another term in office. And because of when he stepped into the presidency during an historic global pandemic, a tipping point for climate change, and right before an invasion by Russia of Ukraine, Biden's approach to the economy so far is getting a lot of attention because there have been quite a few ups and downs, a whole lot of disruption, and an approach to applying resources that's been called into question over and over again, but which by many metrics seems to be doing pretty well, though that pretty wellness is not showing up in the public's sentiment toward the economy or toward him as president. This period of economic adjustments and recalibrations has been strange enough that it's been given the moniker Bidenomics, and that term has come to refer to the injection of capital into the hands of citizens, huge sweeping investments in American infrastructure, new resources for various social safety nets and associated programs, and bullish moves to bulwark and harden the economy as we segue into less predictable times in terms of the environment, in terms of more overt competition with China, and in terms of fresh military threats, sophisticated hacking concerns, and other things of that nature. Biden has said that his approach in this regard is focused on growing the U.S. economy from the middle out and bottom up, rather than the top down, which should empower more people and promote competition, in theory at least. His critics, and the majority of the Republican Party, say that he is mostly just focused on taxing the rich and corporations and injecting his ideology into spaces where it doesn't belong, spaces that should be focused on numbers to the exclusion of all else, promoting the greenification of all sorts of industries, for instance, and promoting what some have dubbed a social justice agenda in businesses that should be able to make decisions about that sort of thing for themselves, while also telling business owners what they can and cannot do when it comes to masks and social distancing and other pandemic-era issues of that nature. Looking at the raw numbers, the economy was in a pretty sad state when Biden stepped into office in 2021. The country and the world was in the midst of an unprecedented pandemic, and consequently, unemployment was at 6.7%. There was a budget deficit of $3.1 trillion in 2020, a new record, and it was unclear if and when the country's economic situation would stabilize, much less grow again. Biden's administration almost immediately started flinging money at social safety net programs and at individual Americans and businesses, passing the American Rescue Plan Act, then the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which for the former sent checks to every American citizen, boosted child tax credits, extended unemployment and health care benefits, and for the latter, pumped about a trillion dollars over the course of a decade into roads and bridges and airports and water and public transit and other sorts of infrastructure around the country. Real GDP grew fast in Biden's first year, and the country saw record levels of job creation, the unemployment rate collapsing from 6.4% in January of 2021 to just 3.9% in December. Inflation started to show signs of growing around this time, but it was initially offset by all that job and wage growth and all those additional social benefits. And it wasn't clear what was true inflation 
and what was the temporary consequence of pandemic-era supply chain disruptions. The stock market, though, just killed it for a while there, the S&P 500 returning 37.4% Biden's first year in office. Things got more complicated in 2022, in part because Russia invaded Ukraine in February, and that kicked off a spiral of events that continues today, upending global supply chains and completely rewiring the global energy system, not to mention the production and shipping of basic food items, causing transportation issues, the emergence of fresh military concerns, and other knock-on effects. Unemployment stayed historically low, though, and because of that, workers had a lot of leverage and were able to increase their average pay across many industries. And that is something that continues today, which we can see in the flurry of strikes that are arising across all sorts of industries. Employees with a near historic level of leverage over their employers doing what they can to lock in some of those gains. Many households maintained savings from the previous year and were able to shrug off early indications of increasing inflation, but sentiment ticked downward as the year progressed, prices of basic goods rising fast, and that worried people, despite those savings which were beginning to deplete and the extra social safety net resources that were only then just beginning to sunset. Biden's administration began to chip away at the federal deficit, as that is one way to address inflation, but murmurs about a potential recession became shouts as the U.S. Fed ticked up the knob on interest rates, making it a lot more expensive to borrow money, which in turn chilled economic activity as part of a larger effort to reduce inflation. And reducing inflation had become a very serious issue. In March of 2021, the inflation rate was up to about 2.6%, which is above the Fed's desired 2% rate. But it jumped to 4.2% in April, then climbed and climbed and climbed, up to a peak of 9.1% in June of 2022. A fairly staggering rate, and one that people were seeing in their grocery bills and when they filled their gas tanks and in their mortgages and rental payments. It slowly dropped from there, eventually hitting about 3% in June of 2023. But it has been a long, arduous process, and that rate still means prices are going up each month. They're just not going up as fast. So the imbalance between what people are making and what they have to spend for the basic day-to-day -day fundamentals has been both practically and psychologically difficult for a lot of people and businesses, despite the fact that this reduction was apparently pretty capably managed by the Fed. That's how it's seemed so far, at least, as if we might actually avoid that predicted recession for the time being, and despite the fact that the economy as a whole today in mid to late 2023, seems to be doing pretty dang well. The unemployment rate has stayed low. The deficit did not explode as some had anticipated. A lot more people from different demographic groups are now consistently involved in the economy rather than excluded. Americans have a higher insured rate and more disposable income and net worth on average than before the pandemic. And the US managed to mostly stabilize things and lower its inflation rate a lot faster than other wealthy countries, many of which are still struggling to get those rates back under control. So things have been pretty decent in broad economic terms during Biden's tenure, even though folks still don't feel great about the economy. 
there are suspicions in the economics world that those numbers will line up better as the months progress and as the economic news, which until just recently has been mostly filled with doom and gloom about recession, starts to refocus on other things. But it's also possible that those inflated prices, if they don't begin to tip back downward, could keep people unhappy for a long time into the future. Now, beyond the consumer-felt elements of Bidenomics, much of this administration's approach to managing the country's resources has been focused on infrastructure, rebuilding, repairing, and investing in next-step projects, ranging from things like solar and wind farms to incentivizing global chip manufacturers to move their production to the states. The Chips and Science Act, which was signed into law in August of 2022, set aside something like $52 billion for U.S. chip companies, plus tax credits to encourage manufacturing in-country. This was part of a larger effort to nearshore and friendshore the fundamental technologies and resources of the next several decades, and it allowed the government, among other things, to play hardball with China in terms of trade sanctions on high-end chips. More semiconductor infrastructure based in the U.S. means there's less chance of China strong-arming another country into giving them chip priority. Or in the case of Taiwan, invading and then cutting off the world's supply of the best chips, potentially claiming that tech advantage for themselves. The Inflation Reduction Act allowed the government to inject billions of dollars into renewable energy infrastructure, providing all sorts of credits for companies and investors wanting to funnel their own money into energy projects, while also reducing emissions and pollution levels, improving health insurance coverage and affordability, and lowering health care costs by tackling drug pricing negotiation issues. Republicans got one of their attack lines from this act, though, as it increased corporate taxes, implementing a 15% minimum tax on accounting income and a 1% tax on stock buybacks. That allowed this act to be implemented with the minimum amount of federal deficit damage, but it was not initially popular with big business interests, as taxes seldom are. Though some businesses have been over the moon about it since, investing in huge new manufacturing hubs and some of them moving their operations from overseas back to the states because the incentives baked into the act far outweigh the tax burden. And some research into the impacts of this act have shown that the majority of financial benefits at this point are being felt in red, more conservative-leaning districts. So setting aside the political propaganda being spread by both political parties in the U.S. right now, Biden's economic approach and record is kind of a mixed bag, but by most non-polemical metrics, it has been broadly beneficial to the U.S. economy. He inherited a pretty bad situation and things are now trending in a pretty good direction, especially arguably in terms of the U.S.'s future outlook, as it is now in a pretty solid competitive position to compete in the key industries of the next several decades, while also enjoying a reinforced position against China, which is economically struggling at the moment, but still a major competitor. At the same time, though, people who have generally at the household level benefited from these programs and this legislation are not necessarily feeling all those benefits, at least not in the way that shows up in most polls. Biden's approval numbers are not great. He's at around 40% approval, but 55% disapproval, which defies left-right population figures, implying that many people on the left 
are just not crazy about him and how he's doing things. That suggests that we could see a turnaround in lagging poll indicators soon, but it's also possible that too much of Biden's numerical successes are future-facing investments that are not doing enough for folks in the present, which is tough for Biden, as the people who will be voting in the next election cycle exist today, not 10 years from now, when some of these programs will pay off the most. So fair or not, that facet of Bidenomics may end up being the most successful line of attack for Republicans against Biden as we careen towards 2024 and its accompanying narrative-cluttered election season. If you're finding some value in what I'm doing here on Let's Know Things, consider becoming a paid supporter. For the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help sustain this show, making these free episodes each week, and netting yourself access to a bonus episode of the show each month as a thank you. A great big thanks to everyone who's already helping to support this show, and thank you very much in advance if you're considering doing so in the future. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Things We Make, The Unknown History of Invention from Cathedrals to Soda Cans by Bill Hammack. This book takes readers through the engineering process that has helped humanity develop all sorts of things, from individual products to the systems that allow us to continue innovating on things and to mass produce all sorts of things that we take for granted. This is a wonderful and very accessible look at some of the fundamental processes that have shaped the tangible and intangible elements of the modern world and that continue to allow us to iterate and upgrade and evolve the stuff that we make and the stuff that allows us to continue making other stuff. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Things We Make by Bill Hammack. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-centric podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods or at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.